Almighty God, whose blessed Son was led by the Spirit to be tempted by Satan, come quickly to help us who are assaulted by many temptations. And as you know the weaknesses of each of us, let each one find you mighty to save. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. It is a uh, been an interesting week, to say the least, here in western North Carolina. I don't know about where you live. I know that the weather's been odd all over the United States. I have friends who live in Wyoming, and, and it's been incredibly cold there. Our son Pelham out in Seattle, they've been, they had a bunch of snow one day this week, which is really unusual for Seattle. And we, on the other hand, were about 80 degrees on Thursday, and uh, it's been really, really warm, really odd to, um, to have this kind of weather this time of year. But we've, we've had a good week. It's been nice. We've been able to get out some and start hiking again, and it feels really good to be out in the woods. And see, already in here we are, what, the late-ish February, and we're already seeing things begin to green up. There's daffodils blooming everywhere. The forsythia is coming out in some places, and so... There's an explosion of yellow <laughs> in multiple places in our neighborhood, uh, and on the trails, things are beginning to to begin to to put out some green shoots. And it's just you know, I, I know that since we've been here in Asheville, and that's been I think 18 years or something like that. Um, during that time, we've had at least five Palm Sundays when we had snow, uh, including a couple of times when there's six or eight inches of snow. Um, usually our, our services would begin outside on, on Palm Sunday, and then we come in waving palm branches and singing the hymn, All Glory, Laud, and Honor. And, and I can remember several times being out there in the parking lot just freezing to death. Um, and, and other times when we just had to say, look, we can't do it outside today. There's too much snow out here. We're going to have to go in. So it, it's certainly odd and unusual. And as Suzanne said, we'll probably be paying a price for this come March. But, uh, hey, we're going to enjoy it while we can. So anyway, looking forward to um, to a trip next week. We're going to Knoxville for a couple of days and have dinner with some old friends that we hadn't seen in quite a while. Saw them at Will's funeral. But other than that, we haven't. It's been quite a while since we've seen them. Love them both. And so really looking forward to going and spending a little bit of time with them. So anyway, let's get this going. We are the first week of Lent. Uh, we had Ash Wednesday service here at the house. If you missed it, just go to my Facebook page. Um, I'll also post it, post a link over on the Faith Seeking Understanding page um, to the to the Ash Wednesday sermon. It'll be over there. Um, uh, it's on YouTube. Uh, I've actually videoed it. Um, I don't normally do that, but but I chose to this time just because. Um, at any rate, so. Today, we're in the season of Lent, which is a time when uh, typically Christians will give up things, um, fast from certain things, um, whatever you choose, actually, in order to draw closer to God. And so here at our house, we're um, looking at, we're fasting from some things um, and also picking up some new disciplines. We're beginning to study some together every day. Uh, as well as as a, as a couple of other um, disciplines that we're going to work on through this season. So I, I'm um, it's hard to say I'm excited about Lent. So I'm not. <laughs> it's but it, but I'm not. You know, it, it's it's not a problem. Uh, but at any rate, so so today what we, where we start is um, I love Genesis. I don't know if if anybody knew that or not. But but I, when I came here. 
um, 18 years ago. I had a group of older men in the parish who who, want, who started a Wednesday Bible study together, and they wanted me to teach it. And the first thing I said was, what do you want me to teach? And they said, well, how about teaching Revelation? It was when the Left Behind series was really hot. And my response to that was, well, before I do that, because I wasn't excited about teaching it, because I honestly don't spend a lot of time in apocalyptic literature. So I, I said, tell me what you believe about the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And then I had to explain what that meant. That gets you through like creation. It gets you through Adam and Eve. It gets you through Cain and Abel, through the flood, um, up uh, through the Tower of Babel and up to the call of Abraham. And they said, well, those are all just myths. And I said, well, we're not going to start in Revelation. We're starting in Genesis. And so for about two and a half, three years, we studied the book of Genesis together. And, I, and, and it was transformational for me and for them. Um, so anyway, so we, we're starting today with Genesis 2, verses 15 to 17, and then skip forward to Genesis 3, 1 to 7. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. <clears throat> so first thing to note is God's the one who created the garden, and he created the garden in the midst of the earth. So, so the whole earth is not the Garden of Eden. No, there's a place in the earth where there's this Garden of Eden, and, and there's geography for the Garden of Eden. If you look at um, part, other parts of Genesis 2, you'll see that geography explains it. It's, it's bounded by three rivers and all this other stuff. So, so it's, it, it's, it's a place on the earth. And then God takes the man and puts the man there to tend it. But who planted the garden? God. And what is the point of the garden? The garden is a place where God can come and meet with humankind. So he made the place and then said, that's where I'll meet with you. And, and we know that he does. He meets with them in that place. The, the same after they're driven out of the garden, when they, uh, when the tabernacle is created, God is the one who gives the plans for the tabernacle and said, be, be careful to make it exactly according to the plans that I've given you. And so they do. Well, if you look at it, it it's a garden. If you look at the accoutrement, if you look at the, the tents that are there, then there, there are all kinds of garden things in there. And so God does this and then gives the same idea for the temple. So there's always a garden. And if you listen to Michael Heiser, you'll see that, that that's really, really typical of uh, religious ideas in the ancient Near East, that, that gods are always seen as living on mountains or in gardens because they mostly live in the desert. <laughs> so gods live in places where there's abundance. But at any rate, that, that's where God created the garden and put man there. And, and so he said, you can eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat for in the day you eat of it you shall surely die he says you may surely eat of every tree of the garden except for that one and if you eat of that one then you will surely die now there's another tree that got that that's described as being in the midst of the garden and that is the tree of life so essentially every other tree is for food and all that then there's a tree of life and then there's a tree of the knowledge of good and evil and you could you could define that one as a tree of death because if you eat of it, you will surely die. So there's a tree of life, and the tree of good and evil is, is really and truly a tree of death. Because if you eat of it, you will surely die. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not have eat, of, eat of any tree in the garden? God didn't say that. He said more or less the opposite of that. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. The serpent says, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? 
so 180 degrees from what God had said. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Well, God didn't actually say that. He didn't actually say, don't eat of the tree that's in the midst of the garden. The only tree that is described specifically as being in the midst of the garden is the tree of life. So already we've got a geographical issue that God clearly said exactly which tree. Not the one in the middle. Nope. The one called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he definitely didn't say, neither shall you touch it lest you die. So that, that's a fence being put around it. Don't even get close to that one is what's being said. The serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die. So again, he's directly contradicting God's word. That sounds like a lot of what's going on in the world today. <laughs> Did God really say? You know, and, and so th- there's a huge problem in the church caused by that very idea. Did God really say? Yes, he did. You know, and the problem is, is that God's people don't know God's word. And that's the real problem in the church today. We don't, it's not a matter of us failing to do apologetics. It's failure to know and stand in God's word. And, and therefore we can be deceived and we can be led astray. He says, you will not surely die for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, there's something really good in that tree and God's keeping it from you because he's not good. He knows that it's so good that you'll be like him, knowing good and evil. Really? That's what separates me from God? Knowing good and evil? That's it. He created everything, well, including you. But what really separates me from God is that fruit and the knowledge of good and evil. Huh. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise... She took of its fruit and ate. Uh, She allowed the evidence of her eyes to overwhelm the word of God and the command of God. It's good for food. It's a delight to the eyes. It was desired to make one wise. Psst. It also brings death. So she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. You know, I used to make fun of him and, and say, well, at least he, she had an excuse. She hadn't heard it directly from God. He only spoke to, to Adam and then created Eve later. <clears throat> and, and so, you know, her idiot husband, who knows better, who was told better by God, couldn't have fallen for this, shouldn't have fallen for this. But the reality is, the more I've thought about it, the more I've meditated on this, they both have a weird excuse here. She didn't die. Right? Does that make God a liar? That she didn't die. So Adam's got reason to doubt as well because, well, she didn't die. So well, I'll go ahead and take some of that too then. Then the eyes of both were opened, which is exactly, exactly what the serpent said. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And it says, then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. Now, I've given you the, the story about what, what uh, Madrash says about uh, this, this idea of, of, of knowing they were naked, and, and that is this, and I, t- I think I told you this last week with the Transfiguration, that, that prior to that they'd been clothed in garments of light such that they didn't look naked to themselves. 
<clears throat> and then when they sinned, that, that garment of light, this kind of glory of God was removed from them. And, th- and that's what you see in the transfiguration is Jesus clothed in garments of light. But be that as it may, that they're now aware of their nakedness in some new kind of way, no matter which way you want to look at it. And I've told this before, but it never gets old to me. So Louis Grizzard, who was a comedian, uh, Southern comedian from down around Atlanta and Noonan, Georgia, uh, popular, very popular in the 70s, 80s, probably the 90s. I can't remember exactly when he died, but it would have been in the 90s. Um, and the only reason I know that is because he was in the hospital at Emory at the same time my father was there getting a, um, uh, a liver transplant. So anyway, so Lewis said this. He said there's a difference, and he, and he explained it w- with respect to Adam and Eve because before they were naked and unashamed, and now they're naked and ashamed. He said, he said, see, Southerners understand that completely. Naked means you ain't got no clothes on. The word we use, naked, means you ain't got no clothes on, you up to something. And he said that's the difference between naked and ashamed and naked and unashamed. And they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loincloths. So they, they, they are immediately, yes, their eyes are opened and they see something. And what they see is something isn't good. What's not good? Naked. Naked. We feel vulnerable. We feel vulnerable suddenly. This is not a good thing. It didn't open their eyes to good. It only opened their eyes to not good. Not good's not the same as evil, but not good, suddenly. And, and they're making value decisions about whether something's good or not good. And, and, and so that's part of the reason they come up with the idea of these garments of light is, is that they feel vulnerable in a way they didn't feel vulnerable before. And so they have the, the awareness of being naked in a different way. And so that's the reason they come up with the idea of the garments of light was is that there ha- something was taken away and it all looks different now and all feels different now. And so this vulnerability comes into this thing. Now, it's an amazing thing, right? I mean, there's one thing prohibited. You may eat of, every, of, the, of the fruit of every tree in the garden with the exception of one. And so in the midst of abundance, the temptation comes into the one thing you can't have. And we fail the test. And the rest is history. And the world is the way it is because we failed that test. The world would not be the way it is if we hadn't failed that test. And it's not the sin of Adam that causes the problem. It's my sin. I'm continuing to cause problems in the world today and make it worse than it would be. It doesn't mean that we should depopulate the earth. It doesn't mean we shouldn't have children and bring them into the world, even with the knowledge that, that they're only going to make it worse too. No, what it means is, is that we have to take responsibility. And with responsibility comes accountability. And so that's what we get. When Jesus comes and saves us and delivers us, then, then, then we're called to tread lightly and we're called to obey him and, and do less harm in the world and bring less evil into the world. So we go from there in the midst of this lush garden, the abundance, this perfect environment that God created for the man to live in and, and gave him the, oper- the, the uh, responsibility of tending it and extending it because they're supposed to multiply, be fruitful and multiply and spread across the face of the earth. And it's not just supposed to be people spreading across the face of the earth. They're supposed to be spreading the garden of God, the presence of God, the kingdom of God across the earth so that the earth is a place where God can dwell. Not just a garden on the earth, but the earth is a place where God can dwell. So we skip forward from there and we come into the gospel lesson today, which is Matthew 4, 1 to 11. And what happens there? Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. 
So we've gone from a garden, the perfect place that God created in the world for man to live in, to the wilderness where his son is. So he's out in a place not of abundance, but of absolute and utter lack. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. I mean, so they're in the midst of this lush garden with anything there they want to eat at any time they want to eat it. And now we come then to Jesus after his baptism by John, when the Spirit leads him out into the wilderness. They, he goes out there, and now he's in a place where there's nothing, and he fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. There's only two other people in the Bible that are described as having fasted that long, and one is Moses on the mountain with God, and the other is Elijah in the cave waiting for God after he has fled the people. So Jesus here fasts for 40 days, and and Matthew tells us he was hungry. Seems an inconsequential detail, but what it does is it points to the humanity of Jesus. God doesn't get hungry. God tells us that. (laughs) multiple times through the Psalms, we're told God doesn't eat the flesh of of bulls and goats. And so here, Jesus is hungry. So, So Matthew is pointing us to the humanity of Jesus. And the tempter came and said to him, if you're the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it's written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So Satan is tempting Jesus to do something, to presume upon his relationship with the Father and to presume upon the power that he has. If you're the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. The, the underlying assumption is if, you're, uh, if you were the Son of God, then you're able to command these stones to become loaves of bread. You have the power to do this. There's an ethical question in there, and there's an ethical question that should resound in everything we do in our lives. And that is, just because you have the power to do something doesn't mean you should do something. And so Jesus responds, because the Father is not the one who told him to do this, and he responds with, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He's quoting Deuteronomy 6. And then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. So we've gone from the place in the wilderness up to the pinnacle of the temple. So we've gone from a low place to a high place. And he said to him, if you're the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it's written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And that's a a call and a temptation to presume upon the relationship and to test God. Hey, he promised he would do this. I'm going to quote scripture too. I'm going to quote Psalm 91 to you. So, this, yeah, there's a promise in scripture. So let's see. Let's, let's, Let's see if he'll do that. Jesus said to him again, it's written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him up to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world. So he took him even higher. So he went from the wilderness to the pinnacle of the temple and even higher up now to the height top of a very tall mountain. And he showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, all these I'll give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan. For it's written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. I I think by the time they got to the top of the mountain, the devil knew he'd been defeated. Jesus is going to have all these kingdoms. I mean, his mission is to come and save humanity, restore the kingdom of God, and ultimately he'll receive all those kingdoms from the hand of God only if he goes to the cross. It's only his death that's going to be able to get those kingdoms for him. His perfect obedience is what's going to be required, even unto death, even unto the painful death of a cross, even unto the rejection by his own people and the betrayal by even his own disciples. 
So Satan says, that's what God wants. I'll give it to you if you'll just fall down and worship me. And what if he had? I mean, it's an interesting question. What if Jesus had acquiesced to that and said, okay, I'll do that? What was God's plan B? You know, I don't think there is a plan B. God was so confident in plan A that he didn't bother with a plan B. But that seems like, hey, I'm appealing to ambition, right? In the same way, he appealed to the, the same things, kinds of things in the garden, right? You can have it all by just taking that fruit and disobeying God in this one thing. And, and so it all appealed to Eve. It appealed to her on three different levels, right? It was good for food. It was a delight to the eyes. And it was desirable to make one wise. And so here, Satan appeals to all those things of Jesus. Hey, I'm appealing to, to you to do something that you're able to do. And there's no prohibition against you doing it. I'm appealing to you so that you can satisfy your own hunger. Right? Then I'm going to satisfy um, the desire to, to know that God loves you. That he's going to prove his love if you throw yourself down off the temple. And then the appeal to ambition, to have everything. And then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him out there in the wilderness. Now, the funny thing is that in Luke's gospel, Luke says, when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed him till an opportune time. And I believe that we can drag that from Luke into Matthew because we can also see that these temptations presented themselves more than once. This was not the only time these kinds of temptations were given to Jesus. We can see them first I think in John 2, there's probably other examples where I could make, but I'm not going to go there. John 2, Mary let Jesus know there's a need for the wine. She didn't intend for him to go to the store and buy some wine. She expects him to do something, something she believes he's able to do. And his response is, what is that to me, woman? My time has not yet come. And then ultimately he does because the Father moved him to do this thing. In John 6, when he feeds the 5,000, and the next day they show up again, and Jesus says, you're here because you know you saw that yesterday and you want more to eat today. But their offer to continue to follow him is conditional. So now here we are in the midst of abundance. And the abundance of people, you got 5,000 people following you, Jesus. You don't want to run them off, right? I mean, hey, everybody likes to have a big crowd. And Jesus responds, what sign uh, do you, they said, what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? Well, I thought you already did. You know, kind of that's what you said when you came. Uh, what work do you perform? Um, how about this? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it's written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. Doesn't that sound a whole lot like man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God? I am the bread of life. You want it, you can have it. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. It's the same response that he gave Satan. <clears throat> in John 7, after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go to G about in Judea, which is Jeru where Jerusalem is, because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand, so his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Come on, you want everybody to know who you are, don't you? Come on, you want to make a name for yourself. It sounds a whole lot like throwing yourself off the temple, though, if you know the backstory. They didn't know the backstory, but Jesus did, because we told that. He didn't go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. So if you know that, 
then to go to Judea is to throw yourself down off the top of the temple and see if God will protect you. Jesus knows that's the truth. So it's, it's exactly the same thing. He's putting God to the test. He didn't tell you to go up. They told you to go up, and they encouraged you to go up by appealing to your desire to be somebody. And so Jesus says no until the Father says go. And then finally in Matthew 16, 21 to 23, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Peter is the one who has just before this confessed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and was commended for that. He says, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. You're not going to be crucified. Come on, I know the story better than that. Come on, you got to know better than that. If you're Messiah, you should surely know that you don't get crucified. But he, Jesus, turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Sounds very much like, right? Be gone, Satan. Jesus turns and says, uh, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For if you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. He offered exactly the same thing that Satan did. Nope, you can have a kingdom. You can have the kingdoms without a cross. No, he's going to obey the Father. I mean, those three temptations uh, show up again and again and again in the life of Jesus. The, the thing about testing God, it's funny, there's only like one place in Scripture that I know of where we are commanded specifically to test God, right? Anybody know what it is? You can probably know. Um, a lot of you can anyway. And, and it's in Malachi. It's in Malachi 3. Um, when, when God is, is fussing at the people and at the priests, by the way, um, about the, the tithe, he is. Um, he says, you test me and bring the full tithe into the storehouse. You're robbing me, the whole nation of you. And they said, how have we robbed you? And your tithes and contributions, you're cursed with a curse for you're robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there's no more need. So that's the only place that I know of where God specifically told people, the people of God, to test him. There's another place where you could kind of infer that God intends that very same thing, and it's when God sends Isaiah, the prophet, to Ahaz. Now, this is the seventh chapter of, of Isaiah, which the sixth chapter is when Isaiah sees God high and lifted up, the train of his robe filling the temples, and the cherubim flying around saying, um, singing, holy, 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 it, when, when Isaiah first is commissioned to be a prophet. And so now he is sent to King Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah. And so the, the issue is Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel. So Israel is the northern kingdom. Judah is the southern kingdom. Ahaz is the king of the southern kingdom. Syria and Israel <coughs> excuse me, have formed an alliance to come against Jerusalem to destroy it. What has Ahaz done? Did he pray and ask God to come protect him? No, he didn't. He wrote to the king of Assyria and said, would you come protect me, please, daddy? And so Isaiah is sent to Ahaz, and and, and he, is, he learns that this thing is going on. And the Lord said to Isaiah, go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And say to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin in Syria and the son of Remaliah. 
because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has devised evil against you, saying, let's go up against Judah and terrify it and conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. And then God goes on and says to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. Why? Was he being religious? No. He already had a plan. He didn't want to hear God's plan, but didn't want to cooperate with God's plan. And so the Lord said, I'm going to raise up somebody else to take your place, essentially. And that person is Hezekiah, who reverses much of what his father Ahaz had done. So here, what we get is, is the opportunity to test God, and he chooses not to, but, but, but it's not for religious reasons. So what do we do when we're confronted with temptation? Well, we know the word of God. And we know the truth. And we don't fudge the truth. We don't say, well, did God really say? Which is exactly what you hear today. Well, Jesus never said anything about that. There's a whole lot of things Jesus never said anything about, and there's a reason for that. There was no reason for him to say anything about it. The things that Jesus spoke on were the things typically that he was asked about or that there was uh, rabbinic disagreement about. There's not a single thing anywhere in Scripture called an abomination that anybody asked Jesus about at all. They asked him about things that, that there was rabbinic disagreement about. As I've told you before, there were two great rabbinic houses at the time, Hillel and Shammai, and, and, or Gamaliel, sorry, and, and there was disagreement between the two of those. And so what they wanted to know at some level was, this rabbi, Jesus, does he agree with, with one or the other? And Jesus says, no, I, I, I agree with God. <laughs> I agree with the Father, and I speak for him. That's the reason that he taught with an authority that was different from the scribes. So, know the Word of God. Stand in the Word of God. Know it well. We have to, because we're constantly being tested to do things that contradict the Word of God, or to go along with things that contradict the Word of God. He made us one in Christ Jesus. No matter what color we are, no matter what what gender we are, any of those things, no, one is not better than the other. We're all one. Paul goes on and on about that. Why? Because the Jews kept asserting their preeminence. And Paul had to keep saying, no, 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 no. That's not better than, Jews aren't better than Gentiles. Male and female, nope. Slave and free, all that stuff, no. All those distinctions are flattened at the cross. Don't allow yourselves to be divided over those issues. In, in, In the epistle today, so, so we've already, how do we deal with temptation? Well, we stand in the Word of God, but, but that implies that we must know the Word of God in order to stand in it, and we have to know it well. And we can't go along with the crowd and say, well, you know, for 2,000 years, that's not how it's been interpreted, but now we know better. And I've told you this, I'm sure, that in the uh, Beatitudes, I looked up where, were the, where was the Sermon on the Mount, and it tells you where it was. It's up near the Sea of Galilee. It's not really a mountain to speak of. It's only a couple hundred feet higher than everything else. But then it goes on to say that, that there was never any such thing as the Sermon on the Mount. Well, I, I'm sorry. I, I can't go along with you on that. But it, it's just scholars say, you know, just, I don't understand how the church has survived for 2,000 years without these scholars to tell us what God actually said and what, God, what Jesus actually did. Well, no, the scholars don't matter to me. That's the honest truth. If they're going to contradict the Word of God and tell you that these things didn't happen, Jesus never said this, never did this, you got to go. 
The church has survived for 2,000 years because it believed in the Word of God, as the Word of God, not because scholars said. At any rate, and the church has persevered, has thrived, and has changed the world because it believed. And that's what we're called to do as well. In, in the epistle today, it's Romans 5, 12 to 19. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin was indeed in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there's no law. Does that mean that, that sin didn't matter to God because there was no law given yet until Sinai? No, obviously not, because, well, look at the judgment at, um, look at the judgment of Noah's time. Look at the judgment at Babel. Look at the judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. I mean, you can see it again and again and again. It's not that, that sin didn't matter if there's no law. If Jesus didn't say anything about it, it doesn't mean it's okay. Clearly, that's not what Paul's saying here. He said, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Adam is a type of Jesus, is what he's saying. But he says, look, those things, death reigned. Why did death reign? Because of sin, even sin that wasn't like the sin of Adam. But, he says, the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. In other words, the work of Jesus is immeasurable compared to Adam. Adam brought sin into the world, but Adam didn't cause me to die. He didn't cause me to sin, and that's the old Jewish proverb of, of that everybody who passes into paradise, into the garden, because that's where they go first, is a holding pen kind of a thing. This is within Judaism. The belief is that there's a cave that you pass through, and it's the cave where Adam himself is buried, and as each soul passes through, it sees Adam sitting there, shakes its head at him, and tuts, tuts, tuts at him, and blames him for this, and Adam gets a chance to defend himself, and he stands and he says, no, 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 no. I'm here because of my sin. You're here because of yours. I might have brought it into the world, but nobody forced you to do it. And so that's exactly what he's saying here is, is that there's the type and the anti-type. Jesus is the anti-type to the type. Adam's the type. Jesus is the anti-type because he reversed the curse. He reversed the sin of Adam through his own perfect obedience and therefore imputes his righteousness to us through his death on the cross where he takes on our sin, imputes our righteousness, his righteousness to us, and thereby we share in his resurrection. We share in his reward. We have eternal life because of Jesus. And he says, the sin of the one man can't be compared to the glory and the grace that's given to those who believe. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. And it all begins right here in the wilderness when Jesus says no to direct temptations by Satan. What would it look like if we did that today, if we said no? To temptation. That's part of Lent. It's teaching us to say no to temptation. It's not wrong for me to want to eat multiple times during the day. It is wrong if that becomes gluttony. It becomes the thing that controls my life. Same with alcohol. Same with all kinds of things. I can't let those things control my life. I have to bring my body under my own control because the body's not made just for food. It's made for the service of God. I don't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That can get compromised. My knowledge of the Word of God, my love for the Word of God can get compromised by my love of the things of the earth. And so that's the reason, the discipline of saying no, 
is very, very important. And it can change our lives. If we begin by saying no in small things, then we can begin to understand and say no to bigger things as well. That's the whole point of Lent, is to teach us how to do that and bring discipline into our lives and pursue the right things and let the right things control our lives. Therefore, so as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. It's all because of Jesus. It's, it all begins. It begins in small ways. It begins with, with these temptations, which he faced alone in the garden, at the temple, and on the high mountain. And then that taught him to see those same temptations presented again and again and again in the midst of abundance. So in, in the midst of lack, Jesus learned to face temptations so that he would understand and recognize those same temptations when it came in times of abundance. That's what we're trying to do during Lent. We're trying to keep things simple during Lent, strip everything down, make things simpler than they, than they, they usually are, and learn to just live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God rather than by our appetites and our desires. I bid you a holy land. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.